May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. <laughs> Drew and I received a wonderful card this past week from um, one of our many wonderful parishioners, a favorite of mine, and she wrote these words. Another wonderful Sunday service via computer. I really feel that I am still in church. Now, that is a wonderful note for us to hear since at this point we haven't seen many of you face to face in six weeks. And certainly we miss you. But as is also the case with this morning's gospel lesson, we need at times to be reminded that sometimes when it feels like God is far away, he is in fact close to us, even when we can't be close to each other. Now, I am always personally very interested, on Sundays especially, to see how the Bible is speaking to us today. I'm less interested in the material as far as um, sort of context is concerned, and I'm personally much more interested in how the living word is still alive and prescient in the place where we currently find ourselves. And so whenever I'm encountering scripture, uh, at least in where preaching is concerned, I always want to ask these two questions, and you've heard me say this before. What do we learn about God? And what do we learn about ourselves. Today's gospel lesson is a famous one. I wonder if you're familiar with it. It's called The Road to Emmaus. There are a lot of famous roads in the Bible. The Road to Damascus is another one. The Road to Calvary is probably the main one. And this one, The Road to Emmaus, is um, another major classic. In this story, it's um, just a few days after uh, Easter and after the crucifixion, and two of the disciples are on their way walking a seven-mile journey. So it's a long walk on a dirt road, probably on a hot day, and they are talking to each other um, about all that has gone on. They have gone from being Jesus's uh, sort of inner circle to abandoning him, to seeing him die, experiencing all of their hopes and dreams are just dashed. And then they, um, as we learn from this lesson, begin to get odd and perplexing reports that after all of the world has gone to heck in a handbasket, Jesus has apparently reappeared, or at least so some of the women say. This, there's more to this lesson than don't forget to believe women, but it's definitely a bit of a theme in our lesson this morning. And so as they are wrestling with all that has taken place, with the ways that their plans and expectations have been dashed, 
It's in that place that Jesus sidles up alongside of them, walks with them for a while, engages them in conversation, meets them where they are, so to speak, and then has dinner with them. And it's not until dinner that evening when Jesus breaks the bread at supper that they flash back to that last supper they had with him in the upper room and they realize who it is that they are speaking to. The one who has in fact been in their midst the entire time. We have a, an incredible painting of this just next door in the fellowship room. And when you're allowed back in the buildings, I do hope you'll check it out. It's by a, a, an incredible Greek artist. He now has um, some paintings also uh, that are hanging in the Vatican. And he was roommates with the famous uh, modern artist Eve Klein. I wonder if you remember Eve Klein, that famous royal blue called Eve Klein International Blue, number 18. He took over the Guggenheim many years ago. Um, Eve Klein's roommate, Omeros, this incredible Greek painter who painted countless biblical scenes. We have his painting next door of the breaking of the bread after that fateful day on the road to Emmaus. Now, the first thing that jumps out in this passage today is that just like in last week's lesson with the 12 gathered together in lockdown, these two disciples are approached by God. He makes the overture long before they have any idea about the significance of the moment in front of them. In the spiritual life, we are reminded today that God is always the first move. He's always the instigator. God comes to them. He came to their friends in a locked room twice. We read about that last week. And he comes to them on a road as they're hightailing it out of Jerusalem. God, in other words, does not wait for them to invite him in before he enters into their particular set of circumstances. This is a helpful lesson for us to have because sometimes we get the wrong idea. We think God will not come to us until we invite him in. People say things like, God is a gentleman. And this passage just smashes that idea to smithereens. No, God is not a gentleman. He is a parent. He is in the life-saving business, and he does not wait for a drowning person to invite themselves uh, to be saved before dashing from the shore into the choppy waters of life. There's a famous painting that captures some of these themes. It's sort of the original Thomas Kincaid painting. It hangs in Keeble College in Oxford, a famous college that sort of looks like a giant lasagna. Maybe you are familiar with it. It is where the Oxford movement was birthed in uh, the late 1800s and early 1900s. The famous Cardinal Newman was there. And 
they have this famous painting in their possession. It's by the artist William Holman Hunt. It's called The Light of the World. And the painting depicts Christ in a dark night, holding a lantern with one hand and standing at the door of what looks like a little hut. It's kind of like Frodo Baggins' home. And he's got his hand out like he's knocking on the door. People travel from all over the world to see this painting, and it's a wonderful thing to reflect upon this idea of God entering into our situation, God at the door knocking. But the question often becomes, does the door lock from the inside or the outside? It appears that given this morning's lesson, the doors might as well not even have locks on them at all. They do not lock or cannot be locked from the inside in such a way that this locksmith cannot easily pick the lock. And he refuses to allow any locks on the outside of the door to keep him from entering directly into their midst for a time of engagement. Now, most of us uh, have been in lockdown mode for a long time at this point. We've gotten used to wearing masks. Many of us now have a favorite mask from our collection of masks. We have gloves that we wear. We go out in public fully protected, distanced, and almost wrapped in armor. We've become so incredibly locked down that, I don't know about you, but all of this safety and all of this precaution makes me miss things like hugs and handshakes and just pats on the arm. And every time I see a dog run up to me, those little dog pats and cuddles are worth their weight in gold. And God is like those dogs who can get through the gloves and the masks and refuses not to run right up to us so that we can at least have a bit of a cuddle given that we are um, so detached at the moment. Now that's a helpful and moving word on a morning like this one for all of us. And what does God find? Well, he finds confusion he finds confoundedness. The disciples are trying to process and make sense of what has been going on in their life. They have had what is basically a traumatizing experience. And Jesus comes and initially, with a little bit of humor, he starts to ask them about their situation. Did you notice the humor? This is what happens. He walks up to them. He says, What are you discussing while you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him. 
Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? He asked them, what things? There's a sly wit in that comment or question. What things, perchance? As though he doesn't know anything about them. I wonder if you saw that um, movie about John DeLorean, the the uh, crazy story about the guy who invented the car in Back to the Future that came out uh, last year called Driven. There's a scene in the movie where uh, John DeLorean approaches a neighbor and the neighbor is working on his beloved car. He has, um, he's under the car and this, uh, he's approached and the guy says, um, basically, wow, that's a pretty nice car. And the guy from under the, the hood, he comes out from under the car and he says, I know, let me tell you about it. And he's talking about a Pontiac GTO. It's his beloved muscle car. And he starts talking about all these different details and all the different things that make the car um, so beloved to him. But also he's doing a lot of peacocking. His pride is out. And then the man standing there, who initially said, nice car, points out some details about the engine that even the owner of the car does not know. And the guy says, wow, you certainly know a lot about Pontiac GTOs, to which John DeLorean responds, I should know a few things about the GTO. After all, I designed her. And suddenly, this guy who a moment earlier knew everything about his car is humbled and realizes he is standing in the presence of the one who knows everything about the car. That is the dynamic at play in this passage today. Notice he then goes to work. Jesus begins to recalibrate their ideas about God. At this point in the story, remember, the disciples are still fixated upon what happened on Calvary, their leader, the one who they viewed as the source of all hope for their future, was crucified. He didn't even put up a fight. And this is where we discover that Jesus has a bone to pick with them. He believes that their misunderstanding of the dominant ways of God are keeping them from recognizing true divinity, even when it is standing right there in their midst. You saw it. This is what they say to him. And this is the piece that Jesus goes to work on. They replied, they tell him what happened and then notice their interpretation of the events. They replied, the things about Jesus of Nazareth are what we've been talking about. He was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And they told him how the chief priests and leaders handed him over and condemned him to death and crucified him. Do you see how what happened was at odds 
with their expectations. They expected might, and instead they got total acquiescence. He did not utter a mumbling word. And then they say this, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. The major misconception about God that they are operating under is that they thought God would reveal his glory primarily using might or power. They expected some kind of quasi-military uprising where the powers that be would be squashed under the greater power of I am. And instead, the one who they thought was the source of power relinquished all of the power and died, losing the battle. They want God to be all about direct mainline power. They want a muscle-bound, Lou Ferrigno type of God. Instead, they get a crucified, sandaled, turn the other cheek, put your sword away kind of a God. So little is he like the idea of God that they had been harboring that they don't even recognize him to be God at all. They want one who will smash the opponents, not one who would rather die than harm a single one of his victimizers. Now, I happen to love an author named Robert Farrar Capon, and Capon was the former uh, canon theologian for the Diocese of Long Island. He was also a food critic for the New York Times, a best-selling author. And in one of his books, he has this incredible introduction. He talks about the difference between a god of right-handed, might-is-right kind of power, the kind of power that both the Jews and the ancient Greek, Greco-Roman world were obsessed with, and he contrasts that with the ways of Christianity, the example of Christ, what he calls left-handed power. These are his words. I'm going to read a slightly lengthy excerpt, but it's incredible. Enjoy. Since Noah, God has evidently had almost no interest in using direct power to fix the world. Direct, straight-line, intervening power does, of course, have many uses. With it, you can lift the spaghetti from the plate to your mouth, wipe the sauce off your slacks, carry them to the dry cleaners, and perhaps even make enough money to ransom them back. Indeed, straight-line power is responsible for almost everything that happens in the world. You could say it's the way that humans tend to make sense of life. And the beauty of it is, it works. From removing the dust with a cloth 
to removing your enemy with a 45. It achieves its ends in sensible, effective, easily understood ways. Unfortunately, it has a whopping limitation. If you take the view that the chief object in life is to remain in loving relationships with other people, straight line power becomes useless. Oh, admittedly, you can snatch your baby boy away from the edge of a cliff and not have a broken relationship on your hands, but just try interfering with his plans for the season when he is 20 and see what happens, especially if his chosen plans play havoc with your own. Suppose he makes unauthorized use of your car and you use a little straight line verbal power to scare him out of doing it again. Well and good. But suppose further, he does it again, anyway, and again, and again, and again. What do you do next if you are committed to straight line power? You raise your voice a little more nastily each time till you can't shout any louder. And then you beat him if you are stronger than he is until you can't beat any harder. Then you chain him to the radiator till. But you see the point. At some very early crux in that difficult personal relationship, the whole thing will be destroyed unless you, who on any reasonable view should be allowed to use direct straight line right-handed power, simply refuse to use it. Unless, in other words, you decide that instead of dishing out justifiable punishment, you are willing quite foolishly to take a beating yourself. Do you see what Jesus is getting at? What Capon is highlighting? The God of power that we want is always the power of God, let's just rephrase, the power of God is always subsumed by the love of God. And the love of God, to the extent that it butts up against power, will always yield in its greater power. Do you see what we're getting at? A total flipping upside down of all of our thinking about life in favor of love. Now, I don't know exactly what this means, and I can't possibly fathom, fathom the implications of all of it, but what I do know is, like it or not, this does seem to be the way God acts. I'm just glad the Bible highlights that this is, in fact, the way God acts, because we live in a world where God's power does not seem to be currently changing the situation all that much. Perhaps he's giving us enough power to resist and to rally together and to fight things on our own 
but he does not seem to simply be in the business of delivering a winning lotto ticket or of squelching COVID right out of the gate. Instead, it seems to still be doing its thing and wreaking its havoc. Now, we're missing that power that we want to see. And the Bible reminds us that what we should be looking for if we want to find God right now is love. And if you look into the eyes of all that we are going through right now, I suspect you have seen a lot of love pouring through the fissures of our lives. My favorite example comes from the front lines from one of our parishioners, Stephen Nicholas, who sent out this message. Stephen Nicholas is a doctor who was called back into work at the hospital of his residency, Harlem Hospital. And he sent out an update this week describing the situation. Tell me if it doesn't drip with compassion. Tell me that his vantage point, his actions, the things that he is seeing, heartbreaking as they are, are not also deeply infused with a compassion that is profound and changes the way we make sense of the current circumstances. Dear friends at St. Matthew's, it's been a rough week. Two of our nurses at Harlem Hospital died of COVID this week. Mrs. Green from the 14th floor had worked here for 50 years and was going to retire next month. A tough-minded and loyal nurse, a good cook who often brought food for the staff, she was like the rock of the Gibraltar. She left behind a thousand unused sick time hours. The other, Mr. Morgan, was a young man who worked here as a pharmacy tech for four years, was greatly beloved, and was encouraged to become a nurse. He worked and went to school part-time and recently got his RN. He'd only worked as a nurse for 30 days before his death. As part of the Helping Healers Heal program, we sometimes get odd requests. Notice the way the doctor's vantage point is so full of compassion and understanding. And then listen to this story. This week, a nurse texted us. She was frantic. One of their patients was dying. They didn't think he would make it through the night. He had one last request, lemon meringue pie and a glass of cran grape juice. The staff had gone out on their breaks to grocery stores in the area, but without luck. Could we help? You can't imagine the number of dead ends in our search. But our team finally managed to find lemon meringue pie via a phone call at the Olympic Flame Diner on West 60th and 10th Avenue and Cran Grape Juice just next door at Duane Reed. I drove like a madman to the restaurant. They, by the way, refused payment and tip. Then I drove even faster back to the hospital and delivered to the cheering nurses. When the patient got his pie and juice, 
He wept tears of joy. He died later that night. And then he writes, there is some good news. See the attached video of one of our patients, an ancient lady who recovered and was discharged home. Emergency room visits have slowed. Admissions have slowed. Deaths have decreased. But we're still at nearly double our normal hospital census. I hope all of you are staying well. All the best, Steve. Steve this week is our stand-in for what left-handed power looks like, for the difference that love makes in tough times, and the reminder that indeed God is with us. Amen.